Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Oh, I've blown out all the levels. They're gone. The levels are gone, people. They're, they don't exist anymore. They're gone. We've, we've levels are a social construct. Levels Nathan. are in fact a cult social construct. Except the song "Levels" by Avicii. Rest in peace. Uh, that that's a banger, and I'll I'll take that one to my grave. Um, that being said, welcome back to Mark's Madness. We're doing it again. And uh, as is tradition, uh, you know, once every two weeks, we're not going to bullshit with you. We're just going to jump in. And this week, we're jumping right into a damn new chapter. Chapters. Would you say you're looking forward to this chapter? Eh? See, when I make bad puns and David wants to slap me, I don't understand what he's talking about because I think it's hilarious. (laughs) But right now, I want to come to this computer so hard. And now I get it. I understand. (laughs) Thank you for putting me in your shoes. (laughs) chapter seven looking forward our brief paragraph long interlude to this chapter how two theories of the future of america clashed and blended just after the civil war the one was abolish abolition democracy based on freedom intelligence and power for all men the other was industry for private profit directed by an autocracy determined at any price to amass wealth and power I'm not going to read the last sentence, but let's just guess how that worked, guys. Just just out of curiosity. How do you think that <laughs> who won there? The uncomprehending resistance of the South and the pressure of black folk made these two thoughts uneasy and temporary allies. <laughs> oh, boy. Now we're going to get this into the fun of... Be we're, we're, fun. we're jumping back into the difference between Linko and, and Charles Sumner. <sighs> Welcome back, Linko. Or do we get... Uh, do we get uh, do we get Thaddy back? It's been a while since Man, we've seen Thaddy. Thaddy hasn't showed up for a while, and I, I'm it's been all I'm Sumner. Crossing my fa- if Sumner's here, Thaddy's got to be here on the side. He everyone needs everyone okay. needs you know everyone needs their hype man. A printer and a carpenter, a rail splitter and a tailor, Garrison, Christ, Lincoln, and Johnson were the. All right, I'm going to stop you right there for two reasons. Please stop me for a lot of reasons, because I'm very confused. (laughs) One, I do not want to see Christ and then Lincoln and Johnson. Just, no. (laughs) Also, which Garrison is that? I don't know what's going on here. It's it's political cartoonist Ben Garrison. We know that. Come on. <laughs> Fuck off. But- <laughs> God damn it. Why do we reverse roles? Fuck you. Uh, also, also, the other reason I'm going to stop that is we just listed all of our prospective new players. And you know who I didn't account for? Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> well, him too. But I met Johnson. I, uh, you didn't I, account a- for Johnson. You accounted for Jesus Christ and a random garrison? <laughs> I'm just saying. Okay. Fun. David forgot that Andrew Johnson makes an appearance in the Civil War gang. Don't worry. There's a video game we'll play to solve that crisis, I'm sure. Ugh. <sighs> One more time. A printer and a carpenter, a rail splitter and a tailor. Garrison, Christ, Lincoln, and Johnson were the tools of the greatest moral awakening America ever knew. Chosen to challenge capital invested in the bodies of men and annul the private profit of slavery. Holy shit. We are getting into it in this one, boys and girls. That's right. Non-binary pals. Holy shit. This done, 
two quite distinct but persistently undifferentiated versions of the future dominated the triumphant North after the war. One was the prolongation of Puritan idealism, transformed by the frontier into a theory of universal democracy and now expressed by abolitionists like Wendell Phillips, students of civilization like Charles Sumner, whoop, whoop, and leaders of the common people like Thaddeus Stevens from downtown. David takes it home. We, okay. I was going to say, I missed, I forgot Johnson, but I Don't called Thaddy. Together with some of the leaders of the new labor movement. The other trend was entirely different and is confused with a democratic ideal because the two ideals lay confused in so many individual minds. This was the development of industry in America and of a new industrial philosophy. The new industry had a vision, not of work, but of wealth, not of planned accomplishment, but of power. It became the most conscienceless, conscienceless, unmoral system of industry which the world has experienced. Dr. Du Bois, I regret to inform you, it got worse. It yes. went uh, yeah. also setting aside unmoral instead of immoral. You, he is I'm going to trust the Harvard man. man. I'm going to trust a the Harvard, Harvard man. man. Um, can we just we talked about some prescient sentences with a lot of utility to be used a lot of places uh-huh. in describing the United States of America? Holy fuck, those two sentences. Jesus Christ, those are. No, yeah. no, don't bring him into this. He already came up. We've already dealt with Jesus. No, okay, God damn it. <laughs> he is nonetheless he's that that is this is truly the actual constitution of the United States in two sentences. Oh no, it gets back. Yeah, I, I was about I to say, David, why? Always why let the boys must talk. you do this? Became the most conscientious conscienceless on moral system of industry which the world has experienced. It went with ruthless indifference towards waste death, ugliness, and disaster, and yet reared the most stupendous machine for the efficient organization of work which the world has ever seen. What you're telling me, David, is that is the best paragraph to describe America. Yes, thank you. That is the best paragraph to describe the United States of America. At any stage in history, in totality, does not matter. The most suspicious. Stupendous the, uh, machine for the efficient organization of work, which the world has ever seen. Oh my god! It's just so- yeah. What is that? Um, oh, what is that word like? Uh, temporal, spatial, something. When you get into, you're the one that read Kant and shit. The the like any space and time, like something in a given space and time. Um, I, dude, you are on your own right now. Enjoy any 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 temporal spatial uh, context. In the United States. That works. That that paragraph is the ontological explanation of America. Yes. 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 Thus, the end of the Civil War was the beginning of vast economic development in the industrial expansion of the East, in the agricultural growth of the Middle West, in the new cattle industry of the Plains, in the mining enterprises of the Rockies, in the development of the Pacific Coast, and in the reconstruction of the Southern Market. Behind this extraordinary industrial development as justification in the minds of men lay what we may call the great American assumption, which up to the time of the Civil War was held more or less explicitly by practically all Americans. 
The American assumption was that wealth is mainly the result of its owner's effort and that any average worker can by thrift become a capitalist. I'm uh, gonna I'm gonna break our rule and want to stop right there. Holy shit! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, bad, what's going on, bad gang? news, Doctor Du Bois. Bad news. Um, bad news. That's not changed. Uh, you put you put an endpoint on that, Doctor Du Bois. You 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 said it stopped. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, he said up to the Civil War. Oh, yeah, I guess no. I guess that doesn't rule out. No, he's, he's talking about yeah, the American assumption was that wealth was made as a result of its owner's effort, hard work, bootstraps, and that any average worker can by thrift become a capitalist. The curious thing about this assumption was that while, um, while it was not true, just so blunt, <laughs> just fuck off. I God, I love him. It was undoubtedly more nearly true in America from 1820 to 1860 than in any other contemporary land. It was not true and not recognized as true during colonial times. But with the opening of the West and the expanding industry of the 20s and coincident with the rise of the Cotton Kingdom, capital C, capital K, it was a fact that often a poor white man in America by thrift and saving could obtain land and capital. And by intelligence and good luck, he could become a small capitalist and even a rich man. And conversely, a careless spendthrift, the rich, might become a pauper since hereditary safeguards for property had little legal sanction. That, gang, in case you're not, like, super tied into the finance world, is not a thing anymore. And anyone that tries to pretend like America is a land of equal opportunity where everyone's on the same page ignores the fact that that last sentence is very relevant. Hereditary safeguards um, for property are extremely real in America today and so Mm -hmm. enshrined that they dictate everything from political dynasties down to just general run-of-the-mill bullshit you deal with on a day-to-day basis. Yes, and not not interject my comments when Nathan's talking from an area of expertise. But uh, I don't have any I'm money. Do not, I'm, I'm not interjecting from any expertise. No, not that. I, I just yeah, I just I just mean from knowing from work. But um, nonetheless, uh, I'm going to interject two words. Please, trust fund. <sighs> yeah, those are my trigger words. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome. Um, but also, I, I would like to point out too, and then Du Bois doesn't do this on purpose because he's he specifically said a white man, and he's talking about you know within the bounds of, of the assumed white man, but he's talking about you know moving westward and and, and burgeoning uh, industry. Not only is there a small window of burgeoning industry of, of monopoly capitalism not existing uh, for this to be true, so you get kind of back to that um, the um, uh, Marx word that that we replaced with. Uh, uh, by dispossession, accumulation what by is dispossession. It? Uh, yeah, uh, primitive accumulation. That's the word. Primitive accumulation. Um, I don't recognize so it, that word. It's kind of got a primitive. <laughs> yes, it's it's kind of got a, a primitive accumulation feel to it, but also uh, thrift, <laughs> um, and and hard work uh, come along with genociding indigenous people and enslaving. And black remember, people. thrift up until the late seventies, let's say in this country. Yeah. Thrift. Uh, there's there's an image that goes around a lot. It's a University of Houston, uh, you know, tuition 
statement, essentially. Um, when you talk about, you know, thrift with inflation, you know, tuition, full room and board, everything for a university education, $500 in, a, in now money. Okay. I, I could thriftily save five hundred dollars. That's that that's half of what a, a modern computer costs to pay for a semester yeah. of education. I could save for that. Those same people that think that that's how education works are now making laws, and they yeah. haven't looked at a tuition statement since then. Yeah, and it's relevant to know that this. Exponentially grows and has grown since the time of Du Bois. And we're going to see that again with the next paragraph. Thus arose the philosophy of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. Those are entirely the same. There's no emphasis differently. It's just a thing on which the American theory of compensated <laughs> democracy was built. Well, I, I mean, maybe you think it's like shirt sleeves, all one word, like shirt sleeves in a different font with a new hyphen in there somewhere. No. I Same get you. Words. I get you. It's a balance. If you're not scale, reading along, yeah. it asked simply in 18th century accents, freedom from government interference with individual ventures and a voice in the selection of government officials. So the same kind of bourgeois revolutionary democracy that the French Revolution has and a little bit of the American Revolution, though it was far to the more bougie side than the French even. David is grimacing at me. You can't see that on video. So, so David, interject, please. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I was trying to figure out the shirt sleeve, shirt sleeve thing. And so I Googled <laughs> okay. it. It's not Nathan's analysis of uh, how bougie a democracy is. It's David Googling the word shirt sleeves and being upset that JCPenney ads are coming up on his computer right now. It's an American translation uh, of a Lancashire proverb. There's no but there's three no- generation of between a clog and clog. A proverb is a short popular saying, this doesn't mean anything. <laughs> wait, are they talking about wait, 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 wait. Is this the three generation rule? Is this the concept that like if you're let's say you're a rock I've I've heard no no I've heard conservatives throw this out that like no 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 wealth isn't hereditary because within like t- it's within three generations someone can go from a billionaire yes, build wealth, to maintain wealth and squander there it wealth. Is. There it. it is. Fuck off. Fuck. Fuck off. That is a that is a myth for a reason. It does not exist. That is the not first, how fucking generational wealth fucking works. They, they have a name for the generations. Hold on. The first one is the entrepreneurial stage. I'm gonna kill somebody. The second one is the sibling stage. Whatever the fuck that means. And apparently these these guys are real into their siblings and their cousins because sibling good. Third stage, cousin federation, squander wealth. Uh, It (sighs) asked simply in 18th century accents, freedom from government, interference with individual ventures, and a voice in the selection of government officials. We've covered this. The continued freedom of economic opportunity and ever possible increase of industrial income. Wait, ever increasing profits? What's that thing we learned from that first book we did about the rate of profit? Mm. I forget. Mm. I forget. That does sound familiar. I know. It's hard to remember. I think it goes down, but I could be wrong. Uh, (laughs) Centralizes a bit. Something, something, something. The continued freedom of economic opportunity and the ever possible increase of industrial income it took for granted. This attitude was back of the adoption of universal suffrage. The disappearance of compulsory military service and imprisonment for debt. 
which characterized Jacksonian democracy. I'm going to assume that's Andrew Jackson. Yeah, no, I Jackson-y. don't. I'm, I'm just saying it's Andrew Jackson because Andrew Jackson's a uh, goddamn fuckhead. So everything bad can be ascribed oh, yeah, no, to he's a piece goddamn of shit. Yeah. Jackson. Great. The American assumption was contemporary with the Cotton Kingdom, which was his most sinister contradiction. The new captains of industry in the North were largely risen from the laboring class and thus living proof of the ease of capitalist accumulation. The validity of the American assumption ceased with the Civil War, but its tradition lasted down to the day of the Great Depression, when it died with a great wail of despair, not so much from bread lines and soup kitchens as from poor and thrifty bank depositors and small investors. There we go. So here's where this... Here's where this mythos in America becomes incredibly mm-hmm. insidious because yes, look at the lot. So, so turn on MSNBC right now, turn on anything right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lines going up, lines going up guys. Stonks yeah. are good. Uh, line go up. Good thing happened. Why then are what? 30 per 10% of Americans unemployed. How does that jive with each other? Why is why is one mm-hmm. incredibly good and one not? Um, because we're we're seeing what happens during a Great Depression, and it's that a certain class of people are allowed to basically scoot by scot free, because when you're not actually laboring for your employment and you're not actually involved in in day to day minutia how mm-hmm. markets move, how, how industry moves is, is sort of, I don't want to say irrelevant to you, but it's almost novel to you. It's like a, Ooh, did the, what went up today? What went down today? I'll play this game kind of a thing. And you move and you position yourself accordingly. The American labor movement founded in the spirit that regarded America as a refuge from oppression and free for individual development, according to conscious and ability grew and expanded in America, basing itself, frankly, upon the American assumption. uh, assumption. Uh, Its object was rule by the people, the wide education of people so that they could rule intelligently, and economic opportunity of wealth free for thrift. It found itself hindered by slavery in the South directly because of the growing belief of the influential planter class in oligarchy and the degradation of labor and indirectly by the competition of slave labor and the spread of the slave psychology. It became, therefore, at first, more and more opposed to slavery as ethically wrong, politically dangerous, and economically unprofitable. Capital, on the other hand, had accepted widespread suffrage as a fact of force on the world by revolution and the growing intelligence of the working class. But since the new industry called for intelligence and its workers, capitalists not only accepted universal suffrage, but early discovered that high wages in America made even higher profits possible, and that this high standard of living was itself a protection for capital, and that it made it more intelligent and the best paid workers and allies of capital and left left its ultimate dictatorship undisturbed. You pay people better, they will side with you, uh, no matter, someone has to suffer. There has to be slaves, there has to be people wiped off the country, but you take certain people and you pay them more and they're going to ally with you, maybe in a fascistic way, you know, just maybe the big, big Second Amendment people, I'm just saying. Um, and 
not only going to reasonably ally to you, but uh, it's going to improve the market for everybody because they're going to purchase more stuff. But that doesn't work unless somebody is suffering. So when they talk about bringing up the lowest person for for uh, benefiting the market, it doesn't benefit everyone because it doesn't benefit them if there's not someone on the bottom. So don't let these like solutions for everyone stuff fools you. This is the everyone. The everyone here was the white worker, and the white worker uh, was only that everyone because black people were enslaved and indigenous people were being ripped off their land. Uh, now, that's still the case, and it's still heavily pointed at those two groups, but the lines are, are a little blurrier because they're not set in stone. So that can you know snap to you as well. So don't think this stuff is meant to benefit you, and don't be fooled by it. Uh, nevertheless, industry took pains to protect itself wherever possible. It excluded illiterate foreign voters from the ballot and advocated a reservoir of non-voting common labor. And it stood ready at any time by direct bribery or the use of its power to hire and discharge labor and to manipulate the labor vote. The true significance of slavery in the United States, the whole social development of America, lay in the ultimate relation of slaves to democracy. What were the limits of democratic control in the United States? If all labor, black as well as white, became free, were given schools and the right to vote, what control could or should be set to the power and action of these laborers? Was the rule of the mass of Americans to be unlimited and the right to rule extended to all men regardless of race and color? Or if not, what power of dictatorship would rule and how would property and privilege be protected? This was the great primary question which was in the minds of the men who wrote the Constitution of the United States and continued in the minds of thinkers down through the slavery controversy. It still remains in the world as a problem of democracy, expands and touches all races, races and nations. So again, uh, as as this talks about, it's it's hard for these people to stay in ruling and just quickly bribe people yeah. and quickly use their their little tactics, their just in case stuff. If there's more people to bribe, as things get more democratic, that's a problem for them. So they have to cut it off somewhere. And you see that now. You see explicit restrictions of voting rights. You see that these lines are blurred, that it's not specifically black people don't get this and white people do. But then they do it you know, institutionally. They, they reinforce it uh, based on wealth. And that is going to affect some poorer white people. And that is we'll let some black people out of it. But largely, it's going to affect black people. Um, you see that with police forces. You see that uh, with um, what is it where uh, the cops can just take uh, seizure property? Um, uh, oh, God, it's not just- eminent domain. Uh, civil forfeiture. Civil forfeiture. Civil forfeiture. You see that with civil forfeiture. Uh, you see that, and and he talked about all races and nations. You see that with U.S. imperialism. You know, Du Bois touches on that, right? I mean, we've talked about it before. I don't think it would be very good or in anyone's interest to say, you know, make Iraq a, a U.S. state, right? But right now they're suffering, um, and they're controlled by the United States. And they also don't get to any say in the democracy. You know, they're just the victim. Uh, and that, that can be something as extreme as, as, you know, Iraq since 2003. Um, or it can be something as, you know, close to home and, and as used to it and as less obvious as, you know, Puerto Rico or Guam. Right. You know, I mean, this is this is an extension. Someone has to be the underclass. And so in order to get better benefits to this higher class because it improves the economy and it makes them more faithful. It makes them stand by you. It makes them sign up to, to, to fight and, and salute the troops and, and, you know, whatever the hell fascistic thing they, they need you to do. Um, 
while of course bolstering bolstering consumption, uh, someone still has to be below that, right? Because if things get totally democratic, why would the the wealth not spread? <laughs> why would things not get better for everyone? Why would people have to live in, in you know destitution and be a labor reserve? And how hard would it be to bribe people? Uh, go, moving on, the abolition democracy was the liberal movement among both laborers and small capitalists who united in the American assumption, but saw the danger of slavery to both capital and labor. It began its moral fight against slavery in the 30s and 40s and gradually transformed by economic elements concluded it during the war. The object and only real object of the Civil War in its eyes was the abolition of slavery, and it was convinced that this could be thoroughly accomplished only if the emancipated Negroes became free citizens and voters. That's a good uh, assumption. I mean, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's incomplete, but it's definitely on the right track. Um, the abolition democracy saw clearly the difficulties of this step due to the ignorance and poverty of the freedmen. For the first time in the classic democracy in the United States, it was made aware that the American assumption was not and could not be universally true. Some of the leaders in the late, <laughs> the people that were dehumanized to uphold this American assumption, all of a sudden are realized to be human and, hmm, maybe this isn't universally applicable. You don't say. Uh, some of the leaders of the labor movement even came to see that it was not true in the case of the mass of white labor, but that but that thought came to the abolitionists afterward and in the minds of only a few clear-sighted men like Wendell Phillips. At the time of the Civil War, it was, however, perfectly clear to Sumner and Stevens that freedom in order to be free required a minimum of capital in addition to political rights and that this could be ensured against the natural resentment of the planners only by some sort of dictatorship. Thus, abolition democracy was pushed toward the conception of a dictatorship of labor. Mm. <laughs> a dictatorship a of the labor. labor. Mm. No, it doesn't. It doesn't flow. Uh, uh, although few of its advocates wholly grasp the fact that this necessarily involved dictatorship by labor over capital and industry. On the other hand, industrialists after the war expected the South to seize upon the opportunity to make increased profit by more intelligent exploitation of labor than was possible under the slave system. They looked upon the free Negro labor as a source of profit and considered freedom that is a legal doing away of the individual physical control all that the Negroes or their friends could ask. They did not want for Negro labor any special protection or political power or capital any more than they wanted this for the Irish, German, or Scandinavian labor in the in the north they expected some popular education and a gradual granting of the right to vote which would be straightly curtailed in its power by mischief by the far larger power of capital so again the capitalists the industrialists are on the side of the planters uh the people that are wealthy and that are in power and that are designed to exploit are going to make sure that these systems are exploitation or capital we in will place. never do that outside the united states that would be wrong hello south america how are you <sighs> the south however persisted in its pre-war conception of these two tendencies in the north it sought to reestablish slavery by force because it had no comprehension of the means by which modern industry could secure advantages of slave labor without its responsibilities the South, therefore, opposed Negro education, opposed land and capital for Negroes, and violently and bitterly opposed any political power. It fought every conception inch by inch, no real emancipation, limited civil rights, 
no Negro schools, no votes for Negroes. <laughs> so nothing. So now we're, we're sitting here. Nothing. So now we're sitting here and we're looking at three different positions. And maybe our earlier conversation um, about the differences and similarities in political parties is going to be a little more prescient again. Uh, the earlier um, conversation from the last episode that we've already cut? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, keep it <laughs> in. Right, just assume we had that conversation. Yeah, no, no, no. We're cutting it. because Yeah. Uh, but you guys know that the, the two parties are, are both similar and different. Um, it's the great, the great dialectic of American politics. Uh, so anyway, sure. that's not the great dialectic. No, I was about to say, no, it's not. This is all getting cut. What are you no, talking about, it's, you it's, mad it's, man? It's private property. Uh, no, but anyway, the, um, there's three positions here, right? You have the abolitionist, the, the true on a moral and a practical level, want the liberation of all black people and they think that's best for everybody from the working class up and they're worried about a concept of true equality of actually having that property of actually having those political rights and they're looking at a dictatorship of labor which again directly translates to a dictatorship of proletariat although theirs did not want the labor to have the power over capital industry because america um, the other two powers are the industrialists where they're like, yeah, you can vote. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll give you, you know, some, some civil rights and things, but we're not going to give you any more, any special rights that we don't give these other, you know, white immigrant groups. Um, and cause we want to exploit the hell out of you. We, we want to keep this system going. We, we want that cash cow to keep pumping things out. And then the South goes, wait a minute. We made all our money on the free labor of slaves. We had all the power from controlling these slaves. Put them back. They're, they're black. They're below us. Give us our power back. And the latter two, of course, represent the two viewpoints of the parties of today. And they're extremely cooperative. They are not opposed in the least bit, even if they'll squabble with each other over what is different, such as squabbling over if black people should get to vote versus if black people shouldn't get to vote. You know, that that is a major I mean, it's a huge difference. It's a material difference. And they will squabble to the death over it. But what's important is they want the black people powerless, back in slave like systems and exploited. That's what you see with the parties today. And and that's um, the I don't want to say the level, but that's yes the 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 window the Overton window if you want to call it that whatever is has shifted a lot yeah and and it is not in a good place and this is where the you know this is where this is the the acceptable level of dialogue we're talking about it's should you be able to you know murder protesters in the street without a badge or with a badge L- less debate. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that that's not the boundaries of what we are or aren't allowed to talk about. Yeah. Um, should you support black lives matter while you turn around and sign all the bills that undermine it and pay all the cops that are, uh, act, the uprising is against, or should you openly oppose it? You know, I mean, that's, that's the difference in, in the parties. And again, there, there will be tangible difference. You know, do you want to support, uh, something that further entrenches that, uh, medical insurance is provided by your employer and, and is a benefit and a means of survival and something you pay a lot of money for? to profit industries small section of people get expanded medicare or how dare people ask for anything but this insured 
you know, medicine that it's the greatest, the free market's the greatest thing there is, you know? So some of it's totally decorum, some of it's tangible, but all of it leads to the same thing. And it's exploiting the shit out of you, especially if you're black or indigenous. Um, and that's, again, you know, I mean, that's exactly what they looked at here. There's no difference. It's just what issues are, is that focused on and what was the decisions, uh, come to by society on previous issues, but it's all operating with the same contradictions and the same groups of people in power on top of the same economic base. Oh, in the face of such, oh, go ahead. (laughs) No, nope. Take it. Okay. In the face of such intransigence, northern industry was, on the whole, willing to yield since none of these concessions really obstructed the expansion of industry and capital in the nation. Oh, they just gave the South whatever the hell they wanted. Nice. Hooray. Uh, when, however, the South went beyond reason and truculently – god damn it, Harvard man um, – demanded not – not simply its old political party or old political power, but increased political power based on disenfranchised Negroes, which it openly threatened to use for the revision of the terrorists, uh, for the terror, for the repudiation of the national debt, for disestablishing national banks, and for putting new corporate form of industry under strict state regulation and rule. Northern industry was frightened and began to move towards the stand which abolition democracy had already taken, namely temporary dictatorship, endowed Negro education, legal civil rights, and eventually even votes for Negroes to offset the Southern threat of economic attack. So again, you know, I mean that, that those, the decorum people, the, the people that want to play by the rules that, that think, you know, humanly, of course, black people should get to vote, but we're more than happy to roll over it for the industrialists. As long as they get exploited, they have the same exploitation in mind, uh, just based on their own interests. Uh, when it gets pushed too far, they get scared and they're like, wait a minute. No. And you do actually see that, uh, with Democrats, but so much as, is a left and right even exist, let alone such a thing as an Overton window. And it's not just an adaptation to uh, material conditions at the time. Uh, today's Overton window, uh, shifting right or today's adaptations of it have shrank the number of things that get that that soft group that that group that considers themselves moderate but swings way towards you know the right or the planter class or or whatever um that level of things that scares them and makes them tread back towards the workers is very small now it and it the really abolition, oh. Why? Oh, no, no, why no, no, no. Must and, you, and really, why must you run? I'm joking. No, it but it, and it really doesn't it doesn't tread back to the workers. It's all, you can see it. It's all window dressing. It's all tinsel on the the tree. None of it's real. None of it's foundational. It's all things that could be ripped away at a moment's notice. It's PR. It's PR. If they absolutely need to give you something. Yeah. If they absolutely need to give you something, um, tangible, to keep the PR up enough to not have you burn the shit down. They'll give it to you. They'll just, you know, they'll, they'll grab something else away from you as they do it. And then they'll work to slowly rip it away. If they don't have to give you anything tangible, they'll just do something for show and move on. And if no PR is necessary, they'll tell you, fuck you and be happy. Exactly. To be the I class. mean, look at what's happening right now. I mean, we, 
I don't. I. 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 They'll paint a street with Black Lives Matter, <sighs> and then murder but they a black the man on that. I can. I mean, I can yeah. visualize the day where I have. You know, we have to have a. Oh, you know, police discharged weapon incident on Black Lives Matter Boulevard, and it's it's all fucking meaningless. And we're dealing with this. Look, it's you want to know how performative it is. Um, again, mm-hmm. we all know professional sports are not when you play with blocks in your commercials or no, that was a DNC. Oh, thing, okay. I didn't know what I was about to throw something at my webcam to take it out <laughs> on you. Um, no, let's look at, uh, uh, again, lots of real visceral emotions coming out right now. Um, mm-hmm. Where are those bleeding into the heaven before sports? Very. I mean, yeah. it, sports have been a place in the past where um, political social movements have found purchase. Um, right now there is a huge outcry over um, the NBA has been, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to go out on a limb here, but I, I always say the NBA has been at the forefront of, of this particular branch of it. Um, a yeah. league dominated and NBA and WNBA. And, oh, both. Yes, yes. Apologies. The, the WNBA and the WNBA has been on it arguably longer. The WNBA has, yeah. Ha- has had more vocal and far more um, mm-hmm. impacting protests than the NBA only because yes. of, again, relative salary and things like that. Um, that, I mean, these, these women are, are, are willing to take risks that, that <laughs> what any of us would, would blush at. Um, yeah. And then followed by, you know, you have the, the MLB, the NFL has not luckily enough been off since anything that mattered has happened. So have not had to venture into this fun pandemic and or uh world where they have to, you know, rationalize protest, even though a lot of, of protest in sports has originated off of the NFL with Colin Kaepernick, obviously being one of the first to, to yes. vocal stand yes. against police brutality and, and the like. Um <laughs> So the MLB, is one of because the NHL, while this is a lot of things, this is a this is an educational podcast. This is a, a book club for for smaller book club groups that don't have another group. This is just mm-hmm. a place where you can hang out. This is also a, a hockey podcast. Unfortunately, At yeah. Let's, better let's not kid worse, ourselves. This is a, I'm wearing a a hockey shirt right now. Um, I I I was wearing a hockey jersey last time. You did. I didn't even realize it. That's how indebted I am. The NHL is the single worst league I have seen on any of this. Um, they are yeah. completely pretending it doesn't exist. They are giving token 30 second moments of silence and pretending that's enough. Um, every hockey team should be embarrassed by the way that they are handling this situation, considering the way that other leagues are. Are, are leading the way and showing them a better path forward. Um, MLB is an interesting one to me. Did you see the Mets issue earlier today? Oh, uh, yeah, I did see that. I didn't actually get to have the volume on, so I didn't get to see what was damning about it. But my understanding was Manfred was trying to get the Mets to, instead of strike, um, do a demonstration, take an hour off, 
and then start and play an hour later anyway. And the Mets GM was having none of it was my understanding. You nailed the, the thing of it. Yes. The, the general manager of the Mets basically said, Holy shit. This guy has no idea what's going on. He thinks an hour long protest is enough to uh, defuse this thing. And, and literally said out loud, he has no idea from a leadership perspective, what's needed <laughs> at this moment. Um, when the general manager of the New York Mets says that you aren't stepping up to the plate as, uh, oh, yeah. look at that. Look at that with a baseball metaphor at all. Look at me. Let me bring that one home. Um, <laughs> it's again, this is, it, it shows you how, where the priorities are. This, this pandemic has done a couple useful things. One of which is to show the priorities of powerful organizations. There are organizations that could mm-hmm. have taken care of employees, supported them during this, gotten through it, and come out the other side. And then there are organizations that that could have done that and chose not to, and chose to plow forward in the pursuit of that that mythical higher you know that mythical advantage we talk about in capital except the advantage is just that you're soulless enough to try and kill people during a pandemic um everyone's trying to find their own little niche maybe that's yours but we're seeing this come apart at the edges and when professional yeah. sports the the you know the the bread and cir- the circuses part of bread and circuses is coming mm-hmm. apart at the seams because the gladiators don't want to fight and recognize that they're being exploited. You you need to realize that something is fundamentally wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the boys. If you insist. <laughs> the abolition democracy was not deceived. It had once feared and dared. It wanted no revenge on the South and held no hatred. It did want to train Negroes in intelligence, experience, and labor, the ownership of land and capital, and the exercise of civil rights and the use of political power. In the advocacy of these things, it reached the highest level of self-sacrificing statemanship ever attained in America. And two of the greatest leaders of the ideal, Stevens and Sumner, voluntarily laid down their lives on the altar of democracy and were eventually paid, as they must have anticipated they would be paid, by the widespread contempt of America. Even to this day, the grandsons of abolitionists, ashamed of their father's faith in black men, are salving their conscience with a theory that democratic government by intelligent men of character is impossible, when in fact nothing else is possible. And the grandsons of the planters of the poor whites who displace them are excusing their apostasy to civilization by charging the Negro with all of the evil caused by the war, destruction and greed, and by the deeds of the white men, northern and southern. You don't say. That is well put, Boyce. No. Harvard man for a reason. Yes. Uh, The abolition democracy advocated federal control to guide and direct the rise of of the Negro, but they desired this control to be civil rather than military, like the strict government of of territories until the new states should develop. They had to help them in the furtherance of this plan, a degree of enthusiasm, humility, and hard work on the part of the depressed Negro, which had not paralleled in modern history. When now they were offered alliance with a northern industry, 
temporary military control instead of civil government and then immediate citizenship and the right to vote for Negroes instead of a period of guardianship they accepted because they could not refuse because they knew that this was their only chance and that nothing else would be offered their territory of democracy led them to risk all even in the absence of that economic and educational minimum which they knew was next to indispensable when Sumner saw his failure here he went home and wept but the belief in the self-resurrection of democracy was strong in these men and lent unconscious power to the American assumption. They expected that both northern industry and the South, in sheer self-defense, would have to educate the Negro intelligence and depend on Negro political power. So, I mean, again, now you're talking about – and this is where people get into – you know, and they're right. Like, how do you judge – you know, black people that were compliant or black people that have, have bought into the, and we say, he says the American assumption, you know, we call it the American dream. You know, it's all the same shit, right? Um, is we even talked about it with the, the Booker T. Washington types with uh, Harry Haywood, you know, of course they accepted it. They felt there was no choice. They were trying to survive. And some of them were not naive, and, and just knew they were out of choices. Some of them did resist it, but weren't the majority. Uh, and some people accepted it and, and, you know, were given the same false faith in the institutions of democracy and things like that, that anybody else, you know, white or otherwise was given. Uh, and they assumed that eventually would come around, that the economics, the invisible hand of the market would push things for the better, that, that just to keep their power, just to not collapse, they would have to take it on. And of course, that's not the case. Uh, someone in power is going to violently guard that power till the end. And when you say the end, it, there's not like a clear delineation of the end. Right. They just run out it, of power. Uh, what, and <laughs> and that transition is always very blurry in the moment. You don't you don't see the mm-hmm. end. I mean, Du Bois, you know, did, did they see the end of the Civil War as the end? No. I mean, what the end constitutes changes every single generation, every single time, every single, I mean, encounter almost you, you blur the end until it's there. And that's, it's important to realize that you person listening, me, David, any of us are very likely not to see the end quote unquote of the thing that we are striving for. All of us are striving for a, yeah. a world, a, a civilization, a government, whatever you want at any level you want to call it. That is unattainable in our lifetimes. That's probably unattainable in our children's lifetimes. If we really want to be honest with each other, but, but, but mm-hmm. go, go to just your own lifetime right now. That should not mean that you struggle less. It shouldn't. No, because it's just because it's not unattainable in our lifetimes doesn't mean it's not attainable and doesn't mean the gains in the interim aren't necessary for the survival of humanity and doesn't mean that you're not um, doing the moral thing with every action and doing the practical thing with every action fighting for that. Um, so I, you know, I think Nathan is, is absolutely right here. Um, we're probably not going to, to wake up, you know, in our 
sixties or whatever the hell arbitrary age in, you know, the, the great socialist America, we have turned everything around and everything is equal and the, the racism is gone, but we are probably if things are trending the right way and we put in the hard work and things bounce our way, at least looking at a power flip, sometime in our lifetime and if we don't whatever we're still fighting for it it'll happen at some point and every bit we fight makes it happen all the sooner and all the all the more effectively um but probably you know on the sooner side at least a power flip but there is so much process even after that power flip to wrestle the last bits of power away from groups you know i mean and and this is where they talked about you know the dictatorship i mean we're seeing it here right where people were absolutely opposed to to the dictatorship in the south that um, Sumner and Stevens advocated that was right. You know, people pushed against it, and um, it, we even saw it was until recently popular a narrative that Reconstruction was was a mistake and was what turned down you know the economy after um, the Civil War and what led to you know all kinds of like lynchings and and was a dark blot in our history. And it's not Reconstruction is only a dark blot in our history because it was not carried out well enough, and it was actually a very very good thing that it was as militant as it was, but you saw the resistance here that kept it from being more militant. And, and we'll see that now when power actually flips, we're going to have to be quote unquote authoritarian to hold down white supremacy. And we just have to make sure that that authority, the quote unquote authoritarian stuff is directed at tamping down white supremacy is directed at decolonizing uh, and is directed at defense from outside agitation that would want the re- outside and inside agitation that would want the return of capitalism. That being said, let's say you disagreed with that last little bit that David went off on right there. Let's say you disagreed with one of the many rants Nathan went off on in this particular episode that David will cut out and therefore will not be relevant at this point when Nathan <laughs> is editing this episode. Um, let's, let's say you just would like to talk to two people that probably agree with you and would like to hang out and, you know, just, just agree and, and, and be, be chill with you. You can contact Nathan and or David in a number of different ways. The first way, traditionally, in terms of progression of, of how media worked, is email. And that email address is marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, let's say you want to move forward a couple of years in tech, technological history. Um, you could probably send us a fax, but I don't know that number, so I'm going to assume you jump forward to Twitter and our Twitter handle is at Mark's madness pod. That's it. I could say at twitter.com, but you don't need that. Um, our DMS are open. Our timeline is open. We're open. We're very open. We're just, we want to talk to you. We want to talk to anybody. If you want to talk to us, we want to talk to you. We appreciate you listening. Um, the last way to contact us directly is through discord. Um, David has discord. He uses it very rarely. So if you want to get to David, the better ways are through email or Twitter. Um, if you want to get to Nathan specifically, discord is probably the easiest way. It's where he lives most often. And, uh, I'm at Mark's madness 
in the uh, Discord server that Mark's Madness lives in, which is Dominopolis Discord server. You can get there via our Twitter profile. Uh, that being said, social media and communication aside, David, how should people ideally use this podcast? Yeah, so uh, the purpose of this podcast from its conception, other than, you know, me and Nathan just reading a book together and, and recording it, because what the hell, um, is the idea that hopefully you're in a party or an organization and uh, you're doing reading groups, uh, political education, whatever you may call it. Um, and hopefully in that reading group, uh, you're reading along with this and this can add complementary uh inside this can add another perspective this can add more context and better under give you a robust understanding of the theory uh save that uh let's say that you are not uh, in a reading group or don't have one available to you or the reading group for political education you're in is reading a different work hopefully then this can be something that can be your discussion or your reading group if you're just reading along on your own. Uh, save that, whether it's a book that we do summarize or one that we read basically word for word. We can either be your cliff notes or your enhanced ebook, whatever we may be, uh, whatever makes these works more assess- accessible to you. And always remember the point of these works, the point of any theory is to sharpen your practices, to sharpen the action out there. When you see things going down, when you see things happening in the world like they are now, going out and participating and helping and moving things forward and making sure things are in the right path and without those praxis this theory is nothing additionally without this theory the praxis is misguided it can lead to adventurism and on very dangerous paths so praxis is theory in action and theory is nothing without praxis as always the disclaimer is my favorite part because i just i it, it never gets old to me um that being said This has been Mark's Madness. My name is Nathan. My name's David. We will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.